BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Finding Hermes podcast. Usually you see my Gen X uh, middle-aged grill at the end of an interview, but this is a special show. It is a double header for you. So I hope you're ready to walk through those doors with the god of the mind, Hermes himself. The reason it's a double header is that and I did mention this in my in the last Finding Hermes show with Jake Loco on Dante's Inferno, the spiritual insights in Dante's Inferno. And the reason is that uh, because of the Astronosis Conference and some events and other issues, I skipped a month or two, so wanted to make it up to you. And making it up to you, I shall indeed, as we have two fantastic guests. First, I'll be talking to Gabrielle Kovalenko. She is a rising star in the esoterica and content creator. Highly recommend you check out her videos. And after, I'll be talking to the very cool Tim Grimes. He is the author of several books and a radical change coach. Both uh, guests will be dealing or more like bringing some very innovative and new vistas to the topics of consciousness expansion manifesting visualization um and well basically just uh breaking down our illusionary reality how to navigate and get out of the matrix both too will be dealing with the idea of the monkey brain that you find in Buddhism. Yeah, basically how to uh, dissipate and corral and tame the voices and emotions in our head. Uh, and these voices and emotions come from within, but they are often programmed from the they're often programmed from that wickedness in high places, those powers and principalities that keep, uh, well, flooding our minds 24-7 in this Philip K. Dick world. 
So I know you're going to get some amazing insights and tools after these two interviews that will help and work in your existence. So I don't want to talk too much. I don't want to spend any more time because there's just so much content. More than two hours for you. I think you're really going to get a lot out of it. So get ready to become transparent to the transcendent as uh, both uh, Joseph Campbell and Mary Magdalene in the dialogue of the Savior said. Enjoy and thanks for being here. Welcome everybody to the Finding Hermes podcast. As always, I hope you're ready to go through those doors with the God of the mind and lay your cards on the table and be transparent to the transcendent, as both Mary Magdalene and Joseph Campbell said. With us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Gabrielle Kovalenko. Gabby, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invite. Pleasure is all mine. And uh, I, as I we talked and I've mentioned to others, I really love the content you're doing. Uh, I think it's important. And uh, this is what this world needs. You had a lot of uh, powerful themes that I would call Gnostic, but of course you've got your own thing that works really well in these modern times. But uh, you started out really early, didn't you? I mean, you weren't, uh, your awakening or red pill wasn't later in life. I believe, what, at 13 you were writing columns on this holistic stuff? That's right. I did start very early. It happened very naturally. You know, I've always been very curious. I'd say an observer of reality, like most of us should be. If we have that moment early in our life when we actually go with the flow and we explore openly everything that we feel called to, I think we're naturally going to be in the mode of a consciousness explorer. We're going to be an individual who ventures into different domains. We're constantly looking for answers because we learn to listen within to that inner calling. And so in my case, it was always oriented in all different directions. I was interested in medicine very early on. So that took me kind of into studying the brain and all kinds of aspects of our, of our body. But then deeper was, of course, the field of consciousness, which I ventured into because I started to understand how we are not physical beings here. We are very much supernatural beings with a physical presence. And the universe being something purely mental in nature drove me to understand that everything comes from a metaphysical place of being. So I started to think about energy and vibration and how everything is born from this subtle energetic plane of existence. And I realized that I had these deeper ideas that when I shared with other people, especially adults, they would tell me that, whoa, like, where's this coming from? It'd be thoughts on intuition and self-esteem and things of that nature. So of course, that's not what we usually think about. It's not like the thought that a kid usually comes to randomly. So I started to write these concepts. And then I realized at some point, just purely thinking about my own process, that it came from some kind of inner place of knowing. That's something that most people would consider to be wisdom, simply feeling this calling from within you to transmit a particular message. That message carries some kind of a frequency. When people tap into those words, they begin to feel an inner confirmation, something that is known as resonance to us, right? When something resonates, you just feel that it's true, even if you don't have necessarily a confirmation for it from evidence coming from outside of you. So I started to write this op-ed column where I talk about these abstract themes of reality and gradually realized that that's something that I can do. So then I started to speak about these ideas and I realized that this is what naturally flows once you get connected to that space of inner knowing and we could all do that. 
So this is my main premise as far as channeling the authentic self goes, tapping into who you are, your higher self, and being able to explore the infinite potential of your own being based on the creativity that you hold within you. Well said. And so it was very positively received when you started at such a young age. Because when I was young, I also was that individual. I was curious. I had the bigger ideas on life. But it was hard to, I had to find people who wanted to listen to me on the edges of society. Uh, in my age, it was the smoking section at high school, rock concerts, kind of on the liminal place. And my mom was very interested, but she was born in a Catholic matrix. So she would listen, but then try to bring what I had to say into the, you know, conform or the proper place. Uh, how was it? people? were pretty open, your family, everybody, when you started asking these deep questions and revelations at such a young age? For sure, I felt very alienated for a long time, even having the deeper thoughts. I realized that, well, because I was so young when I started it, I realized that no one else really at school wants to talk about that. It's those deeper areas that can completely isolate you because you realize that, you know, you can't discuss this with somebody else. The whole point is that it's an inwards journey. It's a process of being indulging like purely in your personal evolution and going through that means learning to be okay with being completely different so for many years i had to just come to that point of acceptance that self-awareness is really the goal here it's learning to know yourself that's why we're all here and um yeah i realized that this is something that i had to kind of give rise to within myself by trusting my own thoughts initially it came through writing and i found that when i just let my thoughts flow through the screen or through the pen, I would keep it to a very authentic place of transmission. Later, when I got some feedback from adults, I started to realize like, if this is something that I'm producing and adults can understand it, then it's coming from a place of simply knowing and not experiential value, which made it even more genuine for me. So other kids didn't receive it. I actually had to go through a lot of personal challenges in terms of not being understood by others who are my age. And so getting past that was really my hurdle over, you know, conformity and that whole challenge of not necessarily getting confirmation from people close to you and learning to trust from a higher source and not a place of immediate recognition and validation. So at that point, I just started to go deeper into this journey and start to align with different sources of information, which led me down this path of truly channeling and becoming more intuitive along the road. So what advice do you have for people, younger people who might feel this call? Uh, what should they do? What should they expect? What resistance should they get? And how can they go through? Because especially in your teens, peer pressure is crushing. Par parental expectations is crushing. Educational. The whole, it's a, the whole world wants to expect Gabby or Miguel when he was young to be a certain way. What advice mm -hmm. do you give to young people not to, I guess, sell out? Is that the... Yeah, that's definitely the challenge of learning to distinguish between yourself and others. I think we all go through this vital phase of gaining our sense of identity. And that identity could come from either associating with these things around you and trying to fit in, trying to just feel good based on how you are received and how your image is created to blend into societal norms and expectations. And to me, I realized early on that just felt false. I started to reject this feeling of the goodness that you get from just blending in and feeling like this is what people want to see 
you become and what message you want to share or don't want to share. In my case, I realized there were things I was purely interested in understanding that other people were not going to understand. And I didn't feel like it was a value to give that up because I always felt this strong distinction between the self and others, between the inner world of knowing and that outer world of falsity. And that's really that simulation of reality. It's seeing everything around you as a projection of you. And if you start to purely identify with external illusion, you can give rise to the illusion within yourself, as in you do not identify with your true values. And don't kind of create this creative process of learning and evolution because you're simply trying to fit in and find a comfortable zone existing from outside of you. So that's what I'd say as far as learning yourself goes, trying to understand what do you actually want to do? Who are you deep down when it doesn't come down to societal factors and what people want to see of you? What do you enjoy doing? What gives you life and inspiration and the power to be yourself? We all have this inner hunch to do something. And I think the main problem is that the school system shuts it down for so many kids. They don't have the opportunity or freedom to explore what they want to. It could be simple as a teacher saying, you know, that's stupid or something. That's enough to make a child feel completely crippled from within and minimized as an individual or parents that don't let kids explore what they want to do. But the beauty of this process of awakening is that I think you can kind of go back in time, retroactively realize when that moment arose, when you felt defeated by someone outside of you. And now you have the power to go back to that aspect of you and kind of hug it back into existence. You tell yourself that it's okay to do what you initially wanted to do because the authentic self never dies. It's just that the persona or the ego could come to overpower it. And that falsity that we want to create in order to feel okay in the world can become so overbearing that we kind of lose sight of who we are. But we can always find that bridge. We can always find what makes us feel like a child again, happy to experience life and the joy of just being ourselves. So to really think about what we want to do, what we love, brings us back to who we are. Well said. It reminds me of a quote I often say uh, by uh, Tim Tom Robbins. It's never too late to have a happy childhood. Like you said, you can go back. You can revisit, see what was going on, why other people did what they did to you, usually because they were afraid. We didn't see their struggles when they were hurting us or repressing us. We didn't see things, and we can bring that innocence back today. Would you say, Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think that that's part of the whole awareness journey, is learning to see the awareness of all those different people, even if they were against you, as vital parts of your own awareness. Mm -hmm. Like we actually, in a way, created all of the opposition, all of the resistance, all these people who once hated us in order to learn how to become a step higher than them. Instead of trying to separate these factors, which seem to shut us down or create challenges, we can kind of integrate them. And that's hard for most people because as soon as there's an obstacle, there's a tendency to want to like repress it, push it away, try to do away with it. But nothing in reality is consolidated in that way within us. It's only through understanding that all of these are milestones of our personal understanding of who we are. So we can say, even looking back to the people who traumatized us or gave us a hard time, like thank you to them because they give us the opportunity to see way deeper into ourselves and just make that extra leap in our awareness through loving instead of judging, through accepting instead of repressing. And that's really that next leap in consciousness, which I think brings us to a new stage of knowing. And what tools have worked for you in this uh, 
self-knowledge knowing thyself uh what would you what are some tools you use contemplation meditation or what has worked for you oh yeah i think that we definitely need to be super introspective we have to allow ourselves to go within and it's a it's a daunting thing for so many people like one of the most common things that i hear from people when they message me is i'm scared to go within i'm scared to be alone it's almost like intimidating to sit with yourself. If you were to put yourself right next to you and have a conversation with who you are deep down, you take off the mask and instead of trying to be someone you're not, you simply allow yourself to listen. And all of a sudden, all these things are revealed, your deepest desires, your inhibitions, your thoughts, the things that you actually want to express but don't allow yourself to. And as that builds up, that resistance within us, it comes out in all kinds of ugly ways in our life. And I fundamentally believe that all these things that we experience that are dark aspects in our reality are just manifestations of the subconscious mind. It's like God's creative way of allowing there to be a merger between the subconscious and the conscious. And to have a super conscious experience, we need to come to realize that there is a bridge, the two are always connected. It's our willingness to accept and to sit with the truth of ourselves that lets us actually be that bridge in awareness. So, that's what I'd say people really need to challenge themselves to do. Be brutally honest with themselves if they don't want the icky manifestations of the subconscious to keep coming through, through unwanted situations, through people that are going to traumatize them further, through physical pain, through things that the body presents as issues, only after it's already presented the subtle cues through feelings, through desires, through all kinds of things that need to be purely just accepted. So the key really is acceptance is so in so many ways, because when we start to lie to ourselves, which so many of us want to do to just kind of take the shortcut, it still ends up coming full circle. There's just no way to escape the truth of who we are unless we want to keep going through the motions of life and making those mistakes till we finally get it. Oh, yes. I think one of my most liberating times was when I realized, hey, Miguel is a fraud He's a construct, but deep down inside, there's a real Miguel, but he is, it's sublime, it's speechless, it's, uh, it's endless, it's so powerful. And also, there's also different fragments of Miguel within me that need to be integrated. Would you agree with this, or how was, what's your view on this? I think by nature of being human, we have different personality types, and we have many different aspects of ourselves that are formed when those circumstances come up in life. So it's an interesting thought experiment in regards to do we even have free will? When do these parts form? Is it in response to things that are predestined in a way, like early childhood events that we end up coping with and that ends up creating permanent changes in our personality and our, in, in our identity? From a sort of higher dimensional perspective, I think we could say that everything is predestined and we chose it. We chose to have the experiences that we did in order to become these different versions of ourselves, almost like going through the inner labyrinth, the maze of our consciousness to understand how can we become this merger of divine consciousness through the awareness of all of this. We definitely have different parts in response to different kinds of experiences that we've had. And it's our task to understand that they're not in opposition. They're perfectly interrelated. Just like in the universe, there's all these different polarities. The same thing exists within us. Everything is on this sort of gradient or spectrum of consciousness. So it really takes not trying to separate these versions of us and learning to be okay with the different conflicting even parts of us. Not being angry at different desires, but learning to just deal with them in a way that doesn't require additional repression. 
And that's what authenticity is all about, really. It's not trying to be someone in order to create a certain image. It's purely understanding who you are based on things you've already been through. Yeah, well said indeed. And uh, what I like, too, about your your channel on Instagram it, and even your webpage is you say, this is something that I've explored, that I'm working out. You don't ever quote anybody. You don't say, well, you know, Jay Krishnamurti said this here, or Plato said this, that. You pretty much stand, this is what I believe in. Is that something you decided? You said, look, I'm not going to try to bring in this thinker or that psychologist. I'm just saying, this is Gabby. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that everything is subjective in the world. Absolutely everything. There's truth to every single perspective. All of these philosophers, even if I disagree with their views, have truth to them. I try to accept all of those opinions. And I've tried to come to a place of simply reflecting without making any solid assumptions about reality, but just through the observational lens of the seeker, trying to understand what is something that we can all fundamentally relate to. So that's why my, my viewpoints are more in terms of where does everything come from? What's the root of all being? Consciousness is the ground of all being. And I try to find a way to bridge science and spirituality. And philosophy is part of this triad, of course, like every different perspective holds to the scientific and religious presumptions, all that stuff. But I just feel like through my way of observing reality, I've been able to see that we ourselves can understand all the answers that we need to by trying to be unbiased about them. By trying to reach that high point of acceptance, we can see how Everybody is God in their own way. Everybody is a reflection of the ultimate truth and the absolute. And so what I share oftentimes resonates in many different ways for different people. I try to be careful sometimes with the way that I phrase things because everything is going to be misinterpreted or interpreted in a subjective way. People want to see what they want to see. They are going to hear what they want to hear. And that's just Especially the on the internet. Especially on totally. the internet, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So I try to not be someone who's going to be appealing to all people. Some people disagree with the way that I say things. But again, I don't try to declare that I have all the answers. I'm saying that everybody is the conduit to their own solutions. Everybody is a receiver of source consciousness. And you can learn to see your brain as a holographic receiver of information. You can learn to gain these skills like intuition and creative reasoning and all of this to start to become this more unbiased observer of the things around you. Perception of reality automatically shifts when you begin to realize that you are one with the all and the all is within you as well. That every point in this matrix contains the whole of the matrix within it. That's such a huge shift in awareness because it places you in the position to be in agreement with all things rather than trying to discern between every philosopher and every thinker and trying to judge people who you don't agree with. It just places you in a place of more understanding. And I think that is the innate wisdom that us human beings should hold to. Instead of trying to see all these issues within the world, we should look for them within ourselves. We should deal with our own trauma, our own, our own you know, conditioning biases and programming. And if we would all take that to heart, the world would be such a pure place because we'd be dealing with ourselves and seeing that that is what reality is all about. Not trying to single out everybody else you have problems with because that only directs more attention at your own issues from within. So that's why I'm like subjectively just trying to point out these things to get other people to subjectively see the truth within them as well. Indeed. And 
How would you define consciousness? That's always the big question, and it's a big word. I mean, I like to say it's just subjectivity, the power of subjectivity. Or how would you, when people ask you what's consciousness, what do you tell them? I usually say it's awareness, infinite awareness, which has many different scales to it, but it's also the ground of all being. It's really just all things that have ever been created. People often view consciousness as just an inner state. It's part of the experience of being you, but I see consciousness as the whole. So there's a macrocosmic degree of consciousness, the universal scale, which produced our experience, but our microcosmic reflection of it is just as relevant because we're a projector for consciousness itself to know itself. So this is a way as almost seeing visualizing source trying to scale itself into every constituent of the matrix as a whole in order to create this experience of being, in order to create this beautiful diversity of experiences and flavors and colors and textures of life in order to understand what oneness is itself. So consciousness is something that evolves when we come to this understanding of it as a concept of the one, the all, and not something that is separate or fragmented because consciousness never can be. So that's, that's really a shift in consciousness and the collective whole that I think needs to transpire for people to actually unify. Because right now, even within the scientific communities, there's a very reductionistic approach, is what I felt when it comes to trying to understand processes, you know, mechanisms of life. Everything is explored as, as far as like a quantum level of how do things arise from a very bottom-up kind of approach. But I believe that everything is a top-down approach. Everything begins from the all and it starts to know itself through scaling down into smaller parts of itself in order for us beings with minds to understand the mind of the creator. And that takes a big shift in awareness for a lot of people because we're taught to see things in this other way. We're taught to see ourselves as tiny parts of the universe. But what if we're the entire universe observing itself in the now moment? So it takes a big shift in perspectives in order to get there. But I think if we even all learned about consciousness as children, we would start to understand how beautiful of a process it is and how amazing the gift of life is that we're able to study ourselves as this part of cosmic consciousness. Good point. Separation. If we taught our children that we're all together, we're all connected instead of we're all individual, could make a big difference. And you keep saying the matrix now you're talking your view is more positive we are just uh you know the divine expressing itself here in the world we're not as some said again with the matrix or the gnostics that we're trapped in this world well in a way we are trapped in order to understand why we are here there is a limitation on our ability to perceive to know ourselves because we have to come to that awareness until we can kind of break out of it Everything in this matrix, as far as a third dimensional construct goes, is to keep us in a loop, in a way. Everything is numerically encoded to create boundary conditions so that we can learn to shift out of this paradigm eventually. I believe that our soul comes in here in order to go through these motions of life to start to explore higher dimensional constructs that can potentially be the kind of the exit route. In order to learn why we're here, we need to understand why we've created the limitations within the matrix. And those are limitations of the mind and limitations of our ability to perceive. So since we have a brain, we can, for example, go into fourth dimension mode easily and understand that 
time is a continuum and everything's existing in the now moment because we perceive things as separate events of time and we see ourselves as being finite beings. All of that is to create a very real experience, to make it seem real, not to feel like it's a simulation and we just don't have to put any value in our existence. So that's why I think it's important to grasp that the matrix is an illusion because that creates opportunity for us to transcend outside of what we think we know and who we think we are. And we're not just our presence right now. We actually have higher dimensional components of ourselves. There's more knowledge to tap into. There's infinite awareness that is outside of us. But we kind of have to reach that limit of the matrix in order to even want to think that way. It's kind of like people don't necessarily want to create change without finding that things have to change. If everything were to be good and perfect, we wouldn't want to evolve. Same thing goes for limitations that are necessary in the world in order to know these aspects of the matrix, like polarities and everything that exists in opposition in order to create correspondence and balance and harmony. So it's really like a wise simulation of the creator's intent to know itself through creating ramifications that have to be broken out of, is how I sort of think of it. Well said indeed. Uh, yeah, I would agree too. Uh, well, and so you see life or existence as a continuation. There's no, uh, Consciousness is a non-local. Gabby will continue after this incarnation. So will Miguel. I guess some people might ask you, do you believe in reincarnation? I definitely do believe in reincarnation. One of the first books that I read that catalyzed my spiritual journey was Many Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss. It's a fascinating story of a psychiatrist who has a patient with many traumatic issues and phobias and different things that are resolved through psychotherapy. So he starts taking her into the trance. And to his surprise, at some point, she starts describing herself as a man instead of a woman in another time and place, going through certain things that are connected to her particular trauma. And he was not a believer in this stuff at all. This was a regular psychiatrist who did not believe in reincarnation or anything like that. But through her experience, he realized that she was tapping into her soul's awareness of what she has already gone through that instilled that information about who she really is. And that she reincarnated to re-experience those fragments of herself without even realizing they were connected to, for example, being in a tsunami in a past life and dying through terrible circumstances that now raise the same kind of response of fear or anger stuff like that so it's through this kind of understanding of how we're actually connected to past versions of us we can understand like why we're back here why are we experiencing ourselves in another form maybe just to gain additional information about who we are at our core we had to go through these very conflicting circumstances to learn to heal something that was never healed even back then so I believe that our soul goes through these emotions in order to gain a depth of experiences. And maybe we all at some point had to experience being each other. Maybe all the things that we do not yet accept about ourselves and that we judge in other people are once repressed parts of us. Maybe we have to be in every possible form in order to finally understand what is it to be in the perspective of source. And once we do, perhaps when we reach that unity within ourselves, we don't need to be stuck in the matrix anymore. Maybe then we can ascend because we kind of come up to another, you know, harmonic bandwidth, if you will, or, or a frequency level that is more in line with a higher dimensional plane of living. Well said again. And I like how I mean, just talking shop here, uh, most people, when they start creating content, they go to different social media channels and all that. But, 
you seem to have struck a really good chord on Instagram. Why did you just out of again talking content creator shop? Why did you decide to go on Instagram to to do what you do? So I actually started on out on Facebook. Oh. I was sharing some quotes. I started a Facebook group a few years ago. And I just, I had this moment when I started channeling these deep thoughts at night. So I went on these deep dives and I would just share some thoughts on what I was doing in the past, like deeper aspects of self, authenticity, this and that, started making these quotes. And at some point I realized that I had a limitation on Facebook. I wasn't getting so much reach. People weren't really seeing with me. I couldn't interact with my community. It was a very small one, but I still had people who believed in the idea. And I thought, wow, well, why don't I try to sort of inspire more people on Instagram because there seemed to be more of this approach of spirituality that I'd seen on Instagram, hashtags trending on new age and consciousness and awakening and all of this. So I thought, let's give it a go. So I started putting that stuff out on there. And as soon as I did, and I started to feel a response, I immediately felt called to start the videos. So the videos were like a next wave of my evolution because I started to feel that through my voice, I started to connect even more to the higher knowing more easily. So I started to channel and I realized over time that it comes even easier that way. That what I had previously thought was my golden zone, just writing the thoughts late at night, it was actually simplified by me trying to focus on a positive intention to share something valuable and it would just come right through. So that's when I started to feel more connected to my audience because prior to that, I was just sharing something that I felt in tune with. After I connected to real people on Instagram, I felt like I was almost building this community and connecting to their mind, like the collective mind, and feeling out the intentions of the people there. So slowly but surely, it's grown, and it's been so nice to see people resonate with my thoughts because I'm I'm creating for them, not for myself, really. And that's something interesting because I'd seen on Facebook, people would think that I just share for myself. Like I'm somehow entertaining myself and just sharing what I feel in the moment. So when I share about like shame or guilt, they think that I'm having a bad day. (laughs) And I'm just trying to say that it's a feeling. I'm like, you know, there's something that wants to come through. It's a particular message. And I don't try to explain where that comes from, but I just feel there's a need. And usually when I do that on Instagram, I hear somebody tell me that's exactly what I needed to hear. You know, there's this instantaneous reflection. So that's been a very cool and rewarding process for me to feel the connection to the real individual that it's somehow intended for. And I'm just the antenna that makes the information come through. Yeah. I love, I really enjoy watching your videos. And like you just said, we're all creators. We all have the mind of God. So you feel you're not doing anything remarkable. This is, should be our natural state, all of us creating, sharing our thoughts, our insights, uh, uh, what we overcome so that we can all, there's no guru. We're all just sharing in a giant network. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think we all have so many unique gifts that we need to tune into. How do we tune in? Again, it takes that very introspective process of trying to understand what makes you unique. So there's this dichotomy between wanting to be yourself and also wanting to be accepted by other people. So how can we accept ourselves if being accepting of ourselves means being alienated in a group of other people? And I found that a lot of people who connect to my message have gone through that same struggle of feeling like they had to shut down who they really are because it was not really something that was popular or they were able to do because of work or just reality life got in the way. So 
Yeah, that's definitely something that people need to focus on. What do I uniquely have to share with the world? And can I start to do that even if I can't in my job or something like that? How can I just hold to myself, create my own routine, create my own patterns, and realize that I don't need to be the product of experience? I can start creating my own experience right now by kind of re-engineering myself, coming back to who I am at my core and not being this reflection of societal boundaries and things created in our minds from other people's influences. Yeah, as I always tell people, this is kind of the best time because there's no wrong way to do a podcast. There's no wrong way to do a YouTube video. There's no wrong way to do a TikTok video. You just throw it out there and let it and somebody will attach or it will catch fire or at least you'll be happier. So it's it's a great time. There's no formula credits here and this length. You just let it out. So true. So true. Except people still try to create some kind of a boundary because they think that they're not going to be accepted. And that's this caveat with manifestation. It's not only the things that we do want to create. It's also every personal boundary that you've decided holds true in your mind. It's still going to be revealed to you. So you think you're not good enough and your reality is going to be projecting that right back to you every minute of the day. You're going to think people are criticizing you. You're going to think you're not going to be loved or well-received. So everything starts to go wrong. And that's something that we really need to break through because when we do, we realize, yeah, the right people are going to connect with us, but we have to be in this headspace of allowing it to happen and being ready for our own expectations to shift. Because as soon as we are, we are actually in alignment with ourselves, the whole world begins to align with us, or at least the right people who are ready to receive what we've got. Yeah, I would agree too. I wouldn't get, it's always, and it's hard. You want, likes and all that good stuff but you also just want to reach the person that really needs to hear what you want to hear and that person you could save their lives or they could be inspired to create their own magic in the world so it's a hard balance and i'm not uh i fall (laughs) i'm not perfect gabby (laughs) but you're doing what you love and you're doing something very unique and it's helping a lot of people because they're seeing that it's okay to think differently right? It's okay to be this unusual observer of reality. So everybody's going to take that in their own way. But I think that's the most inspirational thing that we can do is allow people to perceive the differences in the world, allow them to stoke their own creativity and to do things in a different way, because that's where we we really find ourselves. Yeah. as they say, it's what's the reason you get out of bed? I get out of bed and, you know, I do my meditations, my dream journaling, but I go, what can, how can I share in my podcast and get these guests and show them that there is an eternal world of possibilities out there? We've just started scratching the circles and human consciousness and imagination is just unlimitless. It's um, limitless. There is no limit to it. So I hear you. That's where the passion is. What gets me out of bed? Same with you, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what would you say, you talk something a lot in your videos that I've watched, cognitive reappraisal. Uh, Mm -hmm. Basically, you're telling people how they can re-engineer their minds. Could you share a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cognitive reappraisal, it's a biggie. It's a complicated word for a very simple mechanism. (laughs) Basically, we have the ability to choose. Why not, right? We all should have the ability to choose. We feel like we have the freedom to choose sometimes. Sometimes we feel like life is against us because we couldn't choose the thing that got us into the wrong perspective. 
Now we're angry. Now we're aggressive. Now everything is happening against us. And we find it so difficult to break out of that because we don't want to accept responsibility for the things that have already happened. We feel like we're a victim of circumstance. And now we're stuck just dealing with what life has dished out to us. Well, I tell people that you don't need to allow life to define you in that way. If you don't like something, flip it around. Why not? If you want to choose a better reality, you have to choose for yourself to see the reality in a better way. Cognitive reappraisal is simply about learning to see the best in your situation by flipping whatever has oriented you to be against the situation that you're in. So in many cases, it's a counterintuitive way of thinking because instead of seeing a cause and an effect and thinking that we live in a very linear deterministic fashion, maybe we can now begin to sculpt our own destiny which is a bit of an oxymoron. How can we sculpt our destiny, right? But what if we're creators of destiny through our very perception of it? What if our ability to redefine the way, the way that we see the things that have been presented to us as opportunities is the way that we change their outcome on us? So something that I say, which triggers some people, funny enough, is that you can think it could be worse. So they would think that's like a pessimistic thing to say, like it could be worse. What do you mean it could be worse? It could be better. It puts you in a position of having to accept. It's like I've been saying acceptance is so important. It seems to be a theme these days. If you have a really difficult time accepting something, you're never going to be grateful for who you are and what you have, at least at square one. If you want to create any kind of change, you first need to come to terms with where you are. If you can't do that, you're never going to move from square one. So it could be worse as just one way of seeing yourself as somebody who lives in a more positive light. That's cognitive reappraisal. It's forcing yourself to see yourself in a way that you don't want to see yourself. If you're currently in opposition, if you're blaming reality, if you're blaming people, and if you think that you can't change a thing, because then you're realizing that you're the one screwing things up for yourself. And it's that that keeps people in a rut. I think people can live their entire lives trying to defend and console their own ego because they feel like the wounded child. They're still the one who didn't receive any help, who wasn't liked, who was bullied. And that repressed part of us is like a kid standing in a corner wanting to get some attention. And yet you, you just have to see yourself as being in that position. You have to see that you can turn around and see the light. And that's hard to do because of this particular kind of a trauma response. It's wanting to be received and not wanting to be the one to give it to yourself. And if we just realize that we have created from a higher self perspective, we created that experience to learn to take ourselves away from the ego, to learn to see ourselves as the creator and sort of the resolver of experience to come out of it and to evolve, then we can graduate from that experience. And we don't have to live our entire life thinking, why did that happen to me? Why did I have to be the victim? We don't need to be the victim anymore. So the shift from sort of enabling yourself to be the victim, to being the victor, that is cognitive reappraisal in a nutshell. It's learning to take anything within your mind that serves as a limitation and seeing that now is a door that you just have to open and not something that you have to knock your head against because you're still seeing that as something that is against you. It's like, just open the door. But for some reason, that one very action of having to open that door yourself and not expecting life to change the circumstance for you is what can create a lifelong battle. And so I say to people, like, do you want to be on the battleground or is this just going to be a playground of new experience? And to some that's triggering, to some that's liberating. That's really the choice we have to make. 
Oh, yeah. And what about, uh, could you share your ideas on manifestation? I guess some people might call it the law of attraction, but uh, give us your views on that. I think manifestation is closely tied to what I just said, and that mm. it's what we expect in reality to manifest that actually manifests. It's what's within us that ends up being projected outside of us. It's who we are that ends up being revealed to us through experiences and people and circumstances. But we can try to consciously change what we're expecting, which is born of our past experiences and our true subconscious contents, in order to change what we're manifesting. So empowered manifestation comes from understanding that what you currently have and what you're trying to change was also created by you. So it's not about just adding some new factor into reality, like, oh, I want to be happy, so I need that new car, or I need that relationship, I need that thing that's going to make me feel good, or somebody yeah. who's going to make me feel good. It's like, wow, well, you need to accept yourself right now. If you want somebody to make you feel good, you need to make yourself feel good. If you want to be happy, you need to find happiness in yourself. Not that thing. That thing is a pushed out version of you. If you want more things that are good, try to feel good within yourself. It's creating an inner environment that is abundant and loving and prosperous and complete with everything that we desire because that comes from a condition of higher consciousness, unity consciousness, embodied version of all desires. If we are just left with desiring or craving things or dreaming of things, we single out those things outside of us because we don't think that we can be in alignment with them. So there's a lot of these law of attraction teachings. A lot of times people are trying to create their reality by trying to get that thing. I think that creates even more separation because in trying to get something, they're not seeing themselves as having that within themselves. They're still trying to create a road to the destination, to the desired outcome. Instead of trying to see the now as a desired outcome, instead of trying to focus on personal development as the journey to creating that beautiful condition of life within yourself. And if we focus on personal development, all that is is really manifestation. It's the superpower of manifesting the best version of you. And if you manifest a complete, happy, accepting version of yourself, that's what's going to come through in life. So maybe the only thing that I'd say to people who are like really focused on law of attraction, changing things is how can you right now focus on just being the best version of who you are, not trying to change aspects of your reality, try to like be the change you wish to see in the world. It's such a cliche, but really if that's the re-engineering of self that needs to occur to even witness reality differently. And the fun part is that if you then start to see yourself differently, you might not want to manifest all those things. Because those things you want to manifest are just changes you've been seeing outside of you because you're not happy within. You've been wanting things for the wrong reasons. You've been trying to find solutions without finding the journey into the real solution and the brokenness, kind of mending those gaps within to feel truly happy. So that's also a big key is like trying to be happy by gaining things versus finding true joy through acceptance. I think there's a big difference between that momentary happiness and fulfillment we can get through the acquisition of external factors versus the joyous condition of simply being. And sometimes people don't even have a lot, but they're truly happy people because they find that place of true being. Well said again. And what about uh, these last few years have been pretty intense on much of the world uh a lot of fear out there gabby 
how do you deal with fear or how what advice do you give people on how to handle fear because there's a lot of that out there these days i i always say fear is just uh not wanting to let go of something maybe it's simplistic but uh, uh let me know what do you think what is fear and what advice do you have for people when they feel fear of anything going inward the situation out there what can they do I'd say that really the antithesis of fear is love, right? If we can't experience love in a situation, there's going to be something that we're probably fearing or something that we're inherently against. Something that we also haven't encountered before is going to raise fear because it's the unknown. It's that aspect of our psyche that intentionally is dark because we don't want to go back into these things that have troubled us before that may create a risk. Fear is an important complex to have. It's a survival mechanism. We shouldn't try to eliminate fear. We should just try to understand fear. So if we were to take outside of us the things that we're fearing and sort of just analyze them, analyze them lovingly by trying to understand what is that fear translating into? Is it a desire to understand a part of us? Is it a desire to just sit with that feeling? Not to push it aside, but to just go within and try to understand why is it there? Or what's the initial time that it arose? That's telling us a certain story. It's probably a story that hasn't been listened to in the past. Maybe it's an opportunity for us to fill the gap of somebody who was not there to support us. In general, I think a lot of people are experiencing fear because there's this lonely child within them that wasn't heard at some point. I think COVID started a lot of fear within people because, yeah, they had to sit alone. They had to sit with those feelings and thoughts. And isolation created that boundary for people. They're trying to run away from themselves in order to not feel that feeling of fear. Or they're experiencing so much fear due to external factors because they can't allow themselves to just deal with their feelings. So more and more fear can stack up from an external level because we're still so boundary within. We're not trying to love ourselves completely. Self-love is not just consoling ourselves, not trying to buy nice things for us, not trying to get pampered. It's truly, it's allowing ourselves to understand who we are like a loving parent would. So one of the exercises that I suggest for people is to try to disassociate from your ego a little bit. Try to step away from the identity and try to embody a third-party observer lens. If you were to look at yourself like a loving parent, maybe a loving parent you've never even had, or maybe from the perspective of source itself, how do you look at yourself differently in that situation? How are you going to not empathize with yourself? How are you going to see these experiences you're going through right now but not on an internal level, not like you're trying to resist the fear. Because when you're in a state of resistance, you're not able to understand anything that you're actually going through. It becomes a contradiction because you don't want to deal with those feelings they are too difficult, so you try to push them away. From another third-party perspective, you're able to actually empathize with yourself and the parts of you that are beneath that fear. And so more can come to light. We have to go through this process of sort of rejecting the opposition within ourselves by empathizing more with the wholeness of the experience. Why was this created? And how can we stop fearing by simply loving the experience as it is? And interestingly, at that point, the fear starts to die because you realize that fear is the separation. It's that, that in-between, between the conscious and subconscious. It's what we aren't aware of. But the merger is simply that acceptance. It's usually the case. And fear is often irrational because we think that there's no way to resolve it. Maybe there's something that we really want to do deep down. There's a desire. We don't know why we feel this fear when we try to even think about going in that direction. 
because it's still the unknown. Sometimes we just need to go for it. And in order to break those mental barricades, we just have to allow ourselves to have the freedom to go in the direction of what is most deeply desired. And then fear dies as easily as it was initially created because there was a limitation between us and what we thought we were capable of. So I think it's not that we fear the unknown. It's like we fear what we think we know about the unknown. We fear what other factors have gotten in the way, what people have told us about what could potentially go wrong. But so often it's like we just pretend the fear isn't there and it just starts to disintegrate into our own willingness to create a new experience in that moment. Again, love what you're saying. And uh, right now, these days, uh, according to your website, you're working on your PhD in integrative medicine. You're doing your videos, but you work with clients, do you? And what can they Mm -hmm. expect working with you? Yeah, so I teach this kind of approach to mindful living, consciousness exploration by helping somebody understand everything that they wish to change in their reality as some part of them that needs to be explored more deeply. It's learning to reconfigure your perspective in such a way that you are the primary subject, observer, receiver, and creator of this whole experience. It's really giving the power back to the individual because when they start to psychoanalyze themselves in this loving way, they find the resolve because they start to remember the parts of them that created, manifested every moment in the current experience they're going through. So this often comes right back to childhood, to traumatic times, to times when we were not received and accepted. It's a very simple foundation, but all these other things that come in the aftermath, they end up creating everything that we then want to change. So the foundation of what I teach is this consciousness, full experience of integration. To integrate is to take it as part of yourself and to take these factors that you're currently seeing reflected in this matrix around you as parts of you is to completely see the world as your opportunity to change yourself, to see a better reality. And my education in the holistic medicine, that's all part of the same thing. On a very physical level, the body is revealing how energy plays out. And if you are uncomfortable with yourself physically in any way, if there's an internal manifestation of disease, it's just pointing to repressed emotion, some experience that lodged deep down within you on a somatic level And pain and these physical uncomfortable factors are helping you see what you need to focus on. So this way of living is almost like seeing everything that is happening to you as a map of yourself, of your own psyche. Carl Jung talked about this kind of stuff. It's all a reflection of the deep unconscious parts of us. And as we make the unconscious conscious, we're able to observe the experience that we're having as a completely perfect divine code, helping us to experience more, accept more, love more. And to be happy with who we are, not by trying to gain things, but again, trying to heal them from within and seeing ourselves as the conduit of the whole experience. Awesome. And what are your views today on uh, what is going on in culture? Again, we talked about the last two years, all what's going on. It seems 2022 is just uh, full of... uh, don't want to, I don't want to say shit and giggles, but a lot, <laughs> lot's going on. And it doesn't seem that, uh, you know, jokingly people say the lizard people aren't putting the pedal off the simulation. They're just going to keep hitting us with this and this and this. Uh, do you have a positive view of where we're heading as a culture or what's your take? I think this is really a time for individuation because if you don't want to get sucked into that false cancel culture kind of a vibe this artificial 
aspect of society, then you have to see that that is something you need to see as it is and do your own thing. That's an opportunity for a lot of people to redirect their attention to what truly matters. And because of that, the shift is becoming very apparent and the divide between people is as well. We're seeing a much more radical movement towards one or the other polarity, the extreme. That's the kind of environment that creates war and tension between people. It's also most necessary to see that particular divide and friction in order to find unity. So as players in this game, observing this divide, we realize that we have to choose. We can play into one or another side and we can get sucked into these egregores right? These mass movements of a particular intention, which can be extremely detrimental to our way of thinking, can cloud our judgment because as we give energy to one or the other extreme, we get totally sucked into it. We render our consciousness useless because we're simply focusing on this problem and trying to fight for one another's side. The truth is only the wholeness. It's taking a step back and seeing what's going on and trying not to buy into either party because they're all full of their own judgment, hate, bias, And they're all just creating more of an issue by not trying to see the middle ground. The middle ground is that unity. It's still coming back to ourselves as individuals. Maybe it's not so important to try to prove our point. Maybe it's not about the cultural conformity at all. Maybe it's about what we can derive from ourselves and kind of distance ourselves from it. So to me, there's going to be a lot of like these games going on, a lot of very tense issues that we need to see as reflections of humanity's crisis in terms of not knowing itself. Like how many more conflicts do we need to create as a human species in order to understand that integration is the solution, that acceptance is what is needed. But polarities are the only way that people seem to understand that. And mass crises of misinformation and fear and all kinds of chaotic things have to occur for that to happen. So we have to do our inner work for sure. We need to understand that this is all revealing this issue between unconscious and subconscious and conscious acceptance and trying to see yourself as the creator of that experience in you. Wise words. I think in the last two weeks or month, the best advice I've had, Gabby, I opened a, a book and it was a quote by Marcus Aurelius. In the second century, he said, you don't have to have an you don't have to have an opinion on everything. I was like, oh wow, love so it. True. Very simple. You can shelve things. You can put them away. You can sit there and inspect. You can walk away. You don't have to engage in every fight, controversy, opinion in the world. Right? Just mm-hmm. chill. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Why is it so hard to chill these days? Right? It's like. The environment is creating such a volatile place, almost like, how are you going to respond? There's all these triggers. I got to have an opinion. I got to, I got to type my opinion on the the message on the forum. Exactly. Almost like you have to prove yourself through those opinions, but Mm. that's part of the illusion. It's like, why does it have to be that way? I mean, of course we're all opinionated. I don't think it's possible to be completely non-dualistic, non-judgmental in this reality. We're going to inherently see some side. We're going to have some kind of viewpoint. But the more comprehensive it is, the less reactive we're going to want to be. We're not going to want to prove ourselves if we're just looking at all of this, this observer mode. Like, how is Source looking at this whole situation? It, things look funny the more that you zoom out and you see these fights happening, these battles over, like, who's right and who's wrong. It's really silly at the end of the day. Because you lose energy trying to prove yourself when in the end nobody really wins or loses. It's just this game going on of ego dominance. 
Yeah, in the grand scheme of eternity, these are just passing clouds. It's, yeah, yeah. So, like you said, it's all about your perspective. Uh, so, awesome. Well, as we get to the end, where can people find out more about you? I'll have it on the show notes, but for those listening on audio watching, uh, where can they find out more about you and your work? So, my website is com, but Instagram is the place where the daily content is where I'm constantly tuning in, trying to bring in a new breath of fresh air, a new perspective, just something deep to think about. So I try to put out videos there almost every day. So that's where you can find me, at Gabby Kovalenko. Awesome. Well, I highly recommend the audience to check it out. Great videos. There was one video you had your dog, and I'm like, that dog's really not going to do anything to sabotage. (laughs) Oh, my God, that dog behaved the whole time. I tried that once with a cat. It didn't work out. out. (laughs) No, 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 no. Your dog was definitely listening to your wisdom, so that's good. Oh, yeah. She was was very intent on it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Gabby, we really appreciate you coming on Finding Hermes, and best of luck with everything you do. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is all mine. Welcome, everybody, to Finding Hermes. As always, I hope you're ready to walk through those doors with the God of the mind and lay your cards on the table because these are, yeah, this is the age of Hermes, as I keep saying. And uh, with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Tim Grimes. Tim, how are you? Very good, Miguel. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure is all ours, and I really enjoyed uh, reading a couple of your books, The Joy of Not Thinking and The Law of Attraction Simplified, which we will cover today. And uh, it's interesting because, uh, yes, I keep talking about how the mind is the great trickster. Hermes is both the god of the mind and the tricks, and that was, as uh, Richard Smoley once said, that was not an accident. The, The Greeks knew what they were talking about and your work definitely addresses this so but first um let's talk a little bit about yourself you yourself uh you might say came to be who you are with a crisis you had as a teenager right in the beach on a vacation you had a sort of an existential crisis could you tell us about that sure yeah um i mean it sounds melodramatic and that's like you know if we want to if we want to form a narrative around it it's fun to do that. Um, I'm sure as you know, and as your listeners know that there probably was a lot more to it than just this one incident. But Mm -hmm. this, this incident that I I write about in the joy of not thinking basically um, involved me becoming very uncomfortable um, and feeling like I was having a mental breakdown when I was uh, 16 years old and on vacation with my family in the Caribbean. So, um, it was odd to be in quote unquote paradise and to have this very, basically a catastrophic experience seemingly um, where I, I had already gotten really into like Zen Buddhism and was reading Zen texts that I was to find out later. Apparently teenagers usually did not read or whatever. And um, it just really like threw me off and I, I got 
way in my head. And then physically I started just to feel like I w could die. And I started thinking about what's going to happen to me. And I just became more and more terrified. And I think probably a lot of people listening have had somewhat similar events or experiences in their life. What was interesting in retrospect, you know, what was very interesting is that I reached this point where I was on the beach with my family and I was kind of on the side just trying to stay somewhat sane or seem somewhat sane. And then like the, um, the bottom fell out or something. It was like all of a sudden I had no idea what, what had happened. I thought maybe I, I had died or something along those lines, you know, in Zen, which is the stuff I was reading preceding this event, they call it like a Satori experience, you know, a great awakening, but you can't put, stuff like that into words you never can and that event was so profound and so impactful that it did it's not melodramatic to say that it did shape everything that came afterwards in my life um it, there was a sense of great relief and gradually that sense of relief um dissipated you know and, and anxiety and stuff started to come back in but at the same time, like a, a seeming truth was revealed to me or God was revealed to me in a way that um, I've never forgotten at all, you know, and then, um, you know, that's what that book is about in a way is trying to realize that in our lives and how that comes about and how it doesn't come about. Yeah, well said. Uh, and yes, uh, waking up is A, it's always traumatic, no matter how much you wake up in this world. B, it's not a one and done deal. There's no road to Damascus or the angel Gabriel comes down to you or so. It's a, an ebb and flow as uh, maybe the, the shores on the Caribbean must have looked. Things come and go, the moon rises and falls. Uh, so we keep doing that. And of course, as a, like you as a, curious teenager searching for answers those are always the hardest because you're you're so young but the questions are still so important like sitting in bed as a kid and going well what happens after you die and, and playing these mind exercises you start overthinking before you know it you're just freaking the hell out <laughs> you're, was you're, your, just, uh, you're virginal when you do that like literally yeah. you know it, it, the first time like where when you really get into that it's it's like you said i mean it's it's terrifying, I think, for, for most people. Um, yeah. And were you able to just continue? Because unfortunately for me, life hits you. You've got, you're the kind of uh, soul that in ancient times they'd say, oh, this guy's going to be a priest or a shaman. You know, the village had a place for people like you and I. You're going to be the jester or the shame. We knew who the warrior was, but in this day and age when everything is so... We live in such a factory society. Individuals who have other needs, it's a can be harder, and we end up self-medicating, being outcasts. How was your path through this as a teenager? Yeah, I mean that's well said, and pretty much what happened to me is that I, um, I I always felt kind of alienated, but then this experience made me realize that there was something that was there that I wanted to follow and that even if I was an outsider, that there had to be a, a seeming place for me. 
and so for me, you know, uh, I got real. I was already into Zen, and then I got more into into Zen and kind of following this Eastern mystical philosophy. Like I lived at a Zen center for a while. Um, I was always into art, like very fringy spiritual art, and um, then you know, in my mid twenties, got more into like more traditional, I would say self-development and stuff like that, just because I was looking to find my place doing something. But it's exactly like you said, you just feel like an outcast. And um, it wasn't really until I was probably around 30 that I got the whole seeking thing out of my system. And that's a lot of actually what I talk about in the joy of not thinking. Um, and then in my, you know, I'm 41 now and my, and basically in my thirties, I became more and more comfortable being an outsider and marching to my own drum and seeing how I could be a uh, mature adult and not lose that sense of wonder and uh, be okay with this outsider status. But, you know, without question, that's always going to be there and I'm, it's nothing to be ashamed of. So. No, not at all. Not at all. The great art and ideas are from outsiders. The great teachers that we encounter are always on the edges of town. It's uh, it's hard, but it is what it is. And uh, interesting about your book, because some people might be saying, well, what's this? The joy of not thinking? This is Western civilization. You know, how can we not think our way through things? Uh uh, but your work also reminds me of a book that uh, really helped me during a period when I needed this book. As I often say, sometimes we don't choose books, books choose us. And it was uh, Jay Krishnamurti's uh, Freedom from the Known, which helped me a lot because I was in a storm of anxiety and ideas. But tell us about this idea, this paradoxical or the antithesis of uh, modernity about not thinking. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more of an Eastern concept, I would say, than a Western concept. And, you know, in the East, uh, you hear about it somewhat often. And I, I came from that perspective, you know, where I was reading that stuff. So for me, what I've always noticed, especially after that event on the beach when I was 16, is that when I feel really in touch with God, for lack of better words, the thoughts aren't there. It's like this, people like using the word like beingness or, or knowingness. Mm -hmm. But when you access that, at least for me, and I, I've, I've found for a lot of people, it's almost like you're not, it's like you're not thinking. Now, you know, in the book, I make, I make the clarification that obviously you're thinking, okay? It's not like all your thoughts are going to disappear. But the point is we can be far less rational about uh, our thinking. We can be far less in our head. It's good to be in our head sometimes. It's good to be rational and to solve problems. That's, especially in today's world, very, very important. You know, like when I write, I'm very much in my head in the editing process and stuff like that, for instance. But a lot of the time, most of the time, we are in our head and rationally thinking of solutions that are just baloney. I mean, it's not actually helpful. It's actually hindering us. And from a stress reduction viewpoint, the less we are in our head, the majority of the time, the better we will feel. And that is really the general message of all my stuff is that, um, that we, we overthink. And there's other ways of labeling that. Um, but anxiety and stress, I, I believe, 
comes primarily from overthinking. That is the root of a lot of that, you know, troubling situations we find ourselves in is, is just from overthinking. I think, yeah, your, uh, your, uh, foundational thesis is no matter what you do, thinking decisions, anything else, it, you have to be in a, in a state of calmness and goodness before making any decision or pivoting to any place in life. Is that it, Tim? Ideally, yes. But I mean, the reality is, is so much more, is, is much muddier. Okay. And it's, a, there's a lot more of a gray area. And honestly, that's what these days I'm most interested in exploring is that gray area. And at the same time, there's all these tricks or ways to clear out that thinking quickly that we can access relatively easily. For instance, if we talk out loud to ourselves for a few minutes, we can go from being really in our head to kind of being more out of our head and more feeling aligned or in flow with the present moment. But there's going to be crap in our head a lot of the time, you know, and it's not realistic in my opinion, usually to say like, well, I can't, you know, I, I can't do anything until I, I feel clear because just the, the reality of it is that, well, you're going to be waiting all day. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> you poop on the pop, pot or you get off, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's one or the other. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's more like dealing with it actively. This is like pragmatic advice. I don't really like giving highfalutin spiritual advice because from what I found, and I'm sure that you shared this sentiment at least somewhat, it's the, the real deep truths you can't even articulate. It's like too, it's so profound. So it's more like, all right, well, how can I help myself and in turn help others by sharing practical ways to just feel better and more sane going about my life? You know, that's spiritual practice a lot of the time. It's not like, well, what's God? You know, what what's coming? It's, it's uh we have to get more out of our head about just what's going on in our day-to-day life when everything is very muddy and muddled and what have you. So by out of your head, I'm assuming you mean a place where the answers will come up, the solutions, or at least the acceptance will come up, right? Something like the unconscious, our soul, the place that really should be driving our lives, not our ego. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at this, but like people like to say they like to be in flow. I guess that's what I'm talking about is that if you are able to notice that there's a lot of thoughts, a lot of stress in your, in your mind right now, you just being aware of that and then working through that is very helpful. And a lot of people aren't aware of that. That's a big problem. They just, they assume the stress is there and they don't know how to work through it. And so I help people work through it, you know, and, and uh, as I mentioned, speaking out loud, for instance, is a very good way to do that. Meditation is a very good way to do that. Moving around physically is a really good way to do that. Um, And getting in touch with, with noticing when you feel like you are in, in, in flow, noticing how that feels and making that more of a priority to get there during your, your day-to-day life when things inevitably do get messy and muddled um, makes a huge difference over the long run, you know? Yeah. Very important. I think yeah, self-awareness of what's going on with us. And as you say, in the flow of life. So 
let's uh let's talk about the self-talking and how it works obviously we do see it in life uh children children will sit there and just blah 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 until they can work things out and we sort of lose that as adults obviously young talked about the active imagination creating sort of this theater where you create this character and have a a dialogue with it but what are some examples or techniques of self-talk that you yeah. recommend besides I, uh damn you you cut me off you piece of shit or something like that right well, on this, the road or something <laughs> that's a good place to start though actually is the, the issue is like let's say we're in the in the car and someone cuts us off mm -hmm. can we swear here or now or well, i'll try to yeah, keep, yeah, yeah. i'm gonna try to keep it g just kidding um <laughs> the, uh if let's say someone cuts us off so we get pissed off we you know we say you know what the fuck are you doing this is a good example because it's extreme what we could actually do is keep on going with that. We could keep on yelling at that person, but we become more self-aware when we do that. Now it's very important not to drive into the <laughs> the person that cuts you off. But if you really say like, you know what, if you kind of lose it and start screaming at yourself, screaming at life, talking out loud, like, you know, how the hell can this happen to me? What the fuck is going on? Fuck all this. If you do that for a couple minutes, you're releasing all of this overthinking pent up stress by doing that that's an extreme example that's why i kind of like it but let's say that you know you've had a long day at work or what have you and you feel stressed out you can then you know you could take a walk or go to your car close the door and just start talking out loud honestly to yourself you know don't censor yourself that's i think the key is be uncensored and open with yourself and you can also do this in a very loving manner like you know i love you i know you're doing the best you can you know you can speak out loud to yourself in in a hundred different ways the key is make it out loud so in other words in the joy of not thinking i say it's like those old cartoons where you have like the devil on one shoulder and then you have the angel on the other shoulder now the devil is your inner self talk that's your overthinking that's going the whole day and you know, potentially annoying and stressing you out. Your outer voice, using your outer voice, enables enables that inner self-talk, that devil, to be neutralized really, really easily. Mm -hmm. And it's just something we don't – children know it. We intuitively know it. And it's, it's like it's a built-in part of our physiology, I would say. And then um, we kind of lose it. We just don't use it. It's a tool we don't usually dare use. I mean, you know, if – that advice sounds crazy. It's going to sound crazy to a lot of people. Like, especially if someone cuts you off, if you get really angry, to proceed to get angrier instead of calming down, you know, like that's mm -hmm. like, whoa, that's kind of like, you know, exactly what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. Like, I, I you know, uh, Trunkpa, uh, he, he had that, he always talks about uh, crazy wisdom. You know, he was a Tibetan teacher who started Shambhala and, and Naropa and all that stuff in, in the States. But like that crazy wisdom mentality is kind of getting alive and like having that vigor. And it's like, that is such a liberating and powerful state, but it's also a trickster state and very contrarian to what we're used to doing to uh, neutralize stress. No, it makes sense. And it is a, a pity because in this culture, we are taught that if you walk by and you see some guy talking to himself on the road, on the street, you're like, oh, this guy's likely has some mental problems. Somehow, what happened? <laughs> what? Why did suddenly, like you said, this active imagination, self-talk became uh, kind of uh, mocked by our culture? 
Yes. The good thing now, though, is everyone seemingly can be on their phones. So you can, uh, you, you always have that. <laughs> Every, oh, they're just talking on the phone. But of course, you know, that person used to maybe be considered, you know, some kind of a sage or something like that. And, and now they're considered mentally ill. And as, as we all know who are listening to this, there's a, there's a fine line between it's, it's, you know, again, it's sage and madness is also almost always they're, they're very close to each other and they intermingle. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. you can, and what's cool is you can be very sane and mature and still do something outrageous like this for five or ten minutes, you know. And the joy of not thinking, um, I talk a lot about being playfully active, like mm-hmm. seemingly crazily playfully active, where you're screaming or you know banging your chest, jumping up and down. And if you do something like that, like for a minute or two, if you get really physically active you're going to notice that your overthinking basically dissipates. It's going to, it just, it cannot compete with that kind of physical outward action. Um, And again, this is something children know, you know, that's why they, you know, they run all around and it like they release all this energy and then they take a nap, you know, it's uh, it's natural. It's just, we don't do it anymore. So. Yeah. Our our minds are like nuclear furnaces. Like I said, they're always thinking, so they need places to go. I, I don't know what the, there's a saying, I don't know if it was Stefan Heller who once said, what's the difference between a mystic and a madman? And uh, uh, the difference is a mystic knows when to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way it is. Um, That's terrific. Yeah, that sums up a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the what I was going to ask you is, is this kind of like, uh, let's, in, in, um, NLP natural NLP they talk about anchoring certain behavior and for example try to get yourself in a good mood and do some weird action and you can use that throughout the day or like you said do something really disruptive like you're you're having a fight with your spouse your wife or your boss do something like the chicken dance something that disrupts it's absurd, but it also shows how absurd it is for any people who love themselves to fight. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. I, I actually did a video series like um, back in 2011 called Stop Being Serious. And I, I talked a lot about, you know, doing stuff like a chicken dance or using like really ridiculous voices. Like if you're arguing with your spouse, you know, all of a sudden start talking like this, like, honey, I'm so fucking mad at you right now. You're such a fucking idiot. You know, if you do something like that, it's so absurd. Again, it makes you, it wakes you up. It snaps you out of that cycle of overthinking. I never got into NLP. Um, It's funny, you know, I mean, it's been around for a long time at this point and so many people are into it. It just never... I was always like more into like the spiritual stuff and like intuitively, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Other things made more sense than that did for me. But I mean, the anchoring concept, I'm, you know, I'm into hypnosis and hypnotherapy and stuff. So I don't, in regards to actual, what we're talking about right now, I would say it's just very alive and playful. So it's not, when I do this stuff, it's not anchoring. It's, it's more like it's whatever comes up. And one reason for that is I've been doing it for so long, but we've all been doing it when we were kids. So you, you can reincorporate it, but I wouldn't like, I wouldn't make it a practice the way like you might make meditation or something, a practice or deep breathing, a practice. This is more like something comes up. No, no, you always have this in your back pocket. You know, this is kind of like your get out of jail for free card. You know, if you feel really stressed out, I mean, I always tell people like, if you really are in a bad place emotionally, you know, find a place that's 
in private, hopefully, like go to your car and then just start screaming and, and you know, you know, punching the steering wheel or, or whatever. And you're going to reduce your stress level. I'm not going to say it's going to go down from a 10 to a one, but in the very least, it's going to go down from a 10 to like a, a three or four, which is a dramatic improvement, as we all know, when you're really stressed out to feel just okay instead of really stressed out is a huge improvement. So. Oh yeah. Anything you can do instead of hitting, being in the same pattern, which you, we realize is so repetitive. <clears throat> our enemies, our fights, uh, when we lose our temper, anything to disrupt. And that, in that sense, the trickster God is a good idea, right? <laughs> yeah. It, the trickster God is, is always a good idea in my opinion. Um, especially if you can seem somewhat sane doing it, you know, I mean, I think like when I was younger doing these things, I seemed less sane, you know, and I used to talk to people about, about it who weren't necessarily interested and in, in do stuff like this. And people are like, Oh, wow, Tim's really wacky. Now, you know, the, the longer you do this stuff, the more you can kind of refine it. And when I say this stuff, I'm just not, it's not just like the advice I'm giving. I'm, we're talking more about this trickster, you know, being very playful, being very childlike, you know when to turn it on and turn it off, you know, and then it just, again, you can, it can help you navigate the, you know, the waters of adulthood and seem sane, you know, um, or you can also turn it on more and get way out there. You know, that's an, that's a fine option as well. It's just, it's going to be a more, I would say lonely road. Um, mm -hmm. if you decide to do that. Yeah. Agreed. And, uh, why do you think, we humans overthink it. I mean, I guess that would be the, the big question. I know some have said like Eckhart Tolle and others that look, uh, once upon a time our for, unless we were sleeping, our waking time was solving a problem. We had to eat or we die. We had to outrun the predator. Or we die. We had to find shelter from the storm or we die. It wasn't like it is today where you and I can sit and relax <laughs> in front of a camera and sort of chill out and so human the human mind was always there to solve problems 24 7 and just because we have civilization it doesn't mean a hundred thousands of evolutionary uh uh time is just gonna stop and we're all gonna be captain bacard or zen buddhist or somebody stoics or whatever do you think that's part of it or do you think it's just or is it western society that sort of makes us overthink what are your thoughts I don't think there's a, there's a clear answer. I think any answer is, I don't know. I've never found a, a sufficient explanation. Eckhart Tolle, I, I'm not familiar with that quote. So I, I will say I dis, I, there's something about that I disagree with. And it might mm -hmm. just because I haven't seen the long, you know, his longer explanation. Like I, I think that it's in the power of now. That's, oh, it a, is one book, that's a one book. I've right. read. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've read that, you know, but many, many, many years ago, um, so I, I think that uh, we like, you know, Aboriginal culture, you know, native culture, I, I think they think less like are, are, are less right. in their head. So I don't really buy that. Yeah. Again, they know when to chill out. They right. Yes. Yeah, so they're not in, you know, even somebody like a, a native American once told Jung, a Pueblo leaders, like you Westerners are always so uncomfortable in your skin. And Jung was like, yeah. And he's like, we know when to relax. <laughs> Exactly. So, I mean, I would say that that lends itself more to 
this idea that it might be more cultural than we give it credit for. Um, I think there's just, you know, there's so much good science these days, but there's also almost also so much bad science and explanations about like how we behave. And this is what it's like, I, I'm just not convinced a lot of the time, you know, um, mm. based on my own experiences. Um, there's a lot going on and it's okay not to know. It's like, Oh, you know, we, we see, this is, again, this is like a, a Western concept. It's like, we're going to figure out why we're stressed and then we're going to solve it. And it's like, if we figure that out and maybe we will, but if we figure it out, we're not going to, we don't understand right now what figuring it out looks like. It's like, what it, what's that Einstein quote? Like you have to, you know, you have to elevate your consciousness or whatever to find the solution. It, it's a different. Yeah. You can't thing. use the same consciousness that got you in this problem. Exactly. Right. And so that is like missing for so much of the stuff we're talking about. And, you know, I don't know if we'll talk about like law of attraction stuff, but I'm really into the law of attraction. And that's a huge problem in that field. Uh, probably always has been, but certainly right now, like where people give these cheap explanations and they think that that's like pointing to the, what it's going to actually look like. And it's like, no, like what it looks like is something different you know and and uh that's what we can talk about like this different stuff but it's not a you know see it feel it and become it you know if it, if it was that simple more people would do it and it's the same for stress reduction and all this you know related self-improvement type stuff yeah very good point yeah we definitely want to talk about the law of attraction before we do that uh, in your book, you also talk about vibing. What is vibing, Tim? Yeah, I mean, vibing out. It, so um, the joy of not thinking is made up of three general recommendations. The first is the is the really wacky, playful movement. And then the second one is the out loud self-talk. The third one is vibing out, I call it. And that's just becoming physically really still. Okay, so so the three general options are moving around a lot, using your voice a lot, I would say, your out loud voice. And the third one is becoming physically the opposite of those first two, becoming very, very still. I call it vibing out just because you're not judging your um, your thoughts in your head. You're physically relaxing into, uh, you're like lying down or sitting down in a very comfortable position. And by doing that, it's a really simple way to meditate where you just kind of, oh, everything's here. And it's fine. And there's all these thoughts in my head and it doesn't matter. Or like my leg hurts, it doesn't matter. And I've got a lot of YouTube videos and, you know, I have a podcast where I go through these type of meditations where it's like basically just about vibing out. Um, but it's, it's a very simple way to meditate um, and kind of recognize the power of being present. So, I, you know, I think people like that. And it's, that is the kind of thing, unlike the first two recommendations, that you can make a practice of and decide to do, you know, on a daily basis or, you know, for five minutes in the morning or, you know, throughout your day for a couple minutes each time or something like that. Great, great. Uh, yeah, check out the book. It's a short book and it's uh, chock full of uh, useful tools that you can use that day if you want to read it and then find some solutions your next stressful day at work uh so let's talk about the law of attraction in your book tell us about the thesis of your book and uh what you bring to the table on this uh controversial but popular uh content or uh topic 
Sure. Yeah. So the law of attraction for me is something that I didn't get into. I mean, I watched The Secret, right? But beyond that, I, I did not get into the law of attraction until I was in my mid-30s. So I was already very well-versed in the kind of stuff we were just talking about, very familiar with you know a lot of the great Eastern and Western mystical traditions. And so I always thought the law of attraction was just this superficial kind of bullshit thing. And, you know, I basically happened upon uh, through Amazon and their incredible algorithm, right? Um, some really cool law of attraction teachers, um, specifically Neville Goddard was the person who really turned me on to the law of attraction. And um, I know you've had Mitch Horowitz on the show a couple of times and, you know, Mitch is really like still to this day, one of the few people who's spoken about Neville and some of these other great um, new thought, I guess you could call them, uh, teachers from the 20th century and the late 19th century as well. Mm -hmm. And it's just a really underappreciated um, subject because it's a, in my opinion, it's a mature approach to the law of attraction. It's, you know, these great teachers from a hundred years ago or so, or 50 years ago are talking about the subject matter of the secret, but in a much more profound, mature, practical way. And a lot of them make big claims, which, you know, a lot are bullshit in my opinion, but there's also so much good stuff there that um, strangely is not being explored as much as it could be. Even though the law of attraction is more popular than ever, people are still looking at it from this very superficial lens. Um, and if you're into deep spirituality, if you're into the, you know, Miguel's show, like, there, there's a lot of stuff about the law of attraction that I think would appeal to you that you probably don't know about unless you've kind of gone down the rabbit hole with it. I've gone down the rabbit hole simply because I find, I'm really curious about it. I, I find it fascinating, and I am still baffled that people like Neville and Emil Coué, who was a great hypnotherapist mm -hmm. in, the, in the 1920s, why people like that are not better known today. Um, and so, yeah, I, I hope that they – become better known. And that's part in part why I, you know, uh, write about it and have a, a show about it. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's marketing. They don't have the cool outfits like uh, Anthony LaVey or Crowley or all that. Right, so right, uh, right, right. Neville Goddard is, is amazing. And yeah, Mitch Horowitz turned me on to him and some of his meditations, like the waterfall meditation review the day, he's got all these meditations, which are just wonderful. And they're not, uh, they're very altruistic. You're connected not just to God, but the well-being of humanity, too. That's not the, you know, I'm just going to get a car and get rich and all that other stuff, because I think they realize the, God's imagination is to help you, but it's to help all of us and to help all of us work together. Yeah, the golden rule, I mean, is really is is the, the tenet of, of almost all good law of attraction material. And, I, you know, I like people ask me, they're like, Tim, why do you use this term law of attraction? It's such a trashy term. I'm like, well, that's the point. I want to use a trashy term so more people get it, what the real stuff is. Um, you know, because without question, like, you know, people like Neville, Joseph Murphy, the guy who wrote The Power of Your Subconscious Mind, H. Um, Emily Cady, who's one of my favorite teachers, she was involved with Unity, the Unity Church, like 100 years ago. You read their stuff and you're like, just it's unbelievable. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's spectacular and it's very altruistic. And it's also saying, you know, if we really are 
all imagination or if imagination is far more dominant at least than what we give it credit for far more dominant than like, let's say our willpower is, um, if that's true, then we have to take a lot more responsibility for what we are thinking, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, I talk about the joy of not thinking, but also I'm into what we actually are thinking, what we are imagining. And that again is kind of navigating th- these muddy waters and figuring out where, where to go. And the law of attraction definitely on a pragmatic level helps you do that. If you, if you take the advice of the older great teachers um but a lot of people don't you know and and even neville who i who i love um you know i just posted a couple of videos on this actually it's interesting to see how much more popular he's gotten in like the last three or four years on youtube um and there's a lot of people talking about his advice in a good way but there's far 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 more people discussing it in this very superficial yet cultish way that in my opinion misses the point of what these great teachers were were getting at what do you mean by superficial and cultish way well a lot of it still is like you know i'm going to manifest that you know that that new that specific person in three weeks or you know i i manifested a hundred thousand dollars in two weeks or what have Mm -hmm. you all that's fine i don't i mean again that's all well and good it's just that there's this Neville was a very um, open and uh, far-reaching teacher, and he was a very spiritual person. And I feel like people like to use some of his catchphrases, like, you know, you're all imagination, and then they become dogmatic about it. Hmm. And I, I guess that's really my criticism, is that it's this very dogmatic approach that is um, just not – I don't think it's helpful – uh, for most people to apply than this more loving altruistic approach where you learn about yourself and you also inevitably um, improve the lives of others by improving yourself and improving yourself. Don't get me wrong. Can be, you know, getting that better house, getting that better job, meeting that perfect person. It's just, there's an obsession about these specific secret, like, you know, get this certain thing quickly that kind of, um, devalues the the profundity of Neville's advice or somebody like that. Yeah, well said indeed. And uh, like I often say, I believe in manifesting things in life. And I think like you, our subconscious, our imagination can move mountains. I mean, the hermetic tradition that the universe is within us, we have uh, the power to change reality, r- literally. But the question is, Who's change, Who's getting what they want? Because if my ego gets what it wants, it wants more and it's not going to be satisfied. If something deeper within me gets what it wants, then it shares, it teaches, it uh, makes sure that everybody's taken care of. Would you agree with that, Tim? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know when you had Mitch on, I, I saw you guys talking a little bit about the ego and how he doesn't necessarily view the ego in the same way as most people. And I kind of agree with that as well. Um, but the way we usually look at ego without question, it's my criticism of a lot of the law of attraction scene, the secret scene that's going on today is that it is, it's, it does clearly seem ego driven. While if we just go a little bit deeper, 
which we can usually easily do just by being patient and getting into these teachings, we inevitably find out about ourselves. And by finding out about ourselves on a deeper level, a spiritual level, if you want to use that language, we change stuff for everybody. And that just is like a fluid, natural thing. And it's so cool, you know, and the pragmatic nature of these uh, new thought and law of attraction teachings is really there to the benefit of everybody. So we should not be too egotistical about how we use them. Um, and people are, I mean, it, you know, it is, it is what it is, you know, but it's, you know, we all have those problems too. You know, we think, Oh, I'm going to get, I'm going to manifest a certain thing and it's going to help me. And it's, it's rarely that easy. My book, the law of attraction simplified talks a lot about how manifesting something specific that you want externally is usually not as easy as most people make it seem it is. Well, when you read about this stuff initially or watch the secret, you, you say, oh, this is going to be easy. And you quickly realize it's it's not easy to get something you really want. And the primary reason for that is because we don't feel good while we're trying to get that thing a lot of the time. We don't – it doesn't seem uh, realistic to get it, and so we get stressed out that it's not going to happen. And we got we have to kind of flip things on their head a lot of the time, I think, and really focus on feeling good more often. And then those things we really want in our life, if we feel good more often and feel more deserving of them, they tend to come in and at least come in on an emotional level, you know, where, for instance, if, if somebody's looking to meet the love of their life, right, and they're finding it very hard to do so, if they start working on themselves, I'm not saying that they're going to meet the love of their life within the next half year. But if they start working on themselves, at least they're going to start building better relationships with other people. And then from doing that gradually, chances are they will connect with somebody who they, you know, have a, a you know, a deep romantic connection with or what have you. Um, but it's not as glamorous as saying, you know, you do this one technique and you're going to, you're going to meet your, the love of your life in three weeks, you know, and listen, that can work. Don't get me wrong. It's just, it usually doesn't. That's what it comes down to. You know, it's, um, I think that the more patient we can be with, with these law of attraction principles, usually the more beneficial they can be for everybody, as you said. So, yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right. It has to come from a deeper place. What it, uh, what's the, what's the saying, uh, God, I forget who said it, but he said, uh, God answers prayers and spares the rest. In other words, it's the old monkey paw, be careful what you ask for and all that. Because, uh, yeah, you may think you want this girl really fast, but then it could fall. It, it all goes to shit later on, if you would. Or you can you want your luxury car and then you realize how expensive it is to make to, things like that. You know what I mean? It's uh, absolutely from a deeper place. That that's the whole thing is that, do, you know, do you really want it? You know, and that's like lottery winners. You know, you always hear about that people win the lottery and then a significant percentage of people like, you know, lose the money or are unhappy after they win the lottery. And it's, you have to, um, I guess you could say like calibrate to that level that you, you seemingly want. And what we often find is when we get quiet and meditative with ourselves, we realize, first of all, Oh, I've actually got a pretty good right now. At least a lot of us do, you know, and that's not to make, not to slight people who feel like they don't, but to realize that what you have in the present moment is, is usually okay. And then 
if we get honest with ourselves and really contemplate it, we might realize that what we initially think we want is not what we want, you know, because when we're clear with what we want, that that's a big part of, of this process. If you're clear with what you want, you almost like inevitably are, are you're, you're going for it, right? And almost inevitably, if you continually think it's possible for it to come into your life, at least on this emotional, energetic level, it's going to start to come. You know, and and people deny that of of themselves. They they say, oh, you know, I want this new job, but it seems out of my reach or out of my league. And if they just didn't say that and just acknowledge they wanted the job and be like, you know what, I'm going to get this. I'm going to figure out a way to to reach it. And if when all that doubt creeps in, if they just were like, you know, I still know I really want this, and just kept on focusing on on you know getting it, something like that job would probably show up in their life eventually. Again, it might not be in two months. It might take two years. It might take five years, but it would be probably a path worth taking as opposed to that path of, oh, I'm not good enough. That's out of my league. You know, in the law of attraction, they like to say, you know, nothing's out of your league. Anything is possible. And I, I always think that's a little bit silly too. Cause like, I like giving like the flying example, you know, like people dream of, of flying in their dreams all the time. But like, when do you ever see somebody actually flying, you know? Um, but that, that said, the power of our imagination is, is incredible. And it's, it's something that we can, we can definitely harness and utilize um, more effectively than we do. Even if we're good at harnessing our imagination, we can get better and better at it as Emil Kuwe said. So. Well said. And yeah, uh, it was Oscar Wilde who said that quote, uh, God answers some prayers and spares the rest. So Oscar <laughs> always, always hitting the right notes. Oh, and- man. He, he, he's got some, yeah, he really, it's got some great lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very memeable. Uh, if you would, very totally. fridge magnet, fridge magnet. Uh, but, uh, you also write in your book that you feel that as a whole, our culture is against us feeling good. Yes, I, I, uh, this kind of plays back into what um, we were talking about. Is it, you know, back in the the aboriginals, you know, before civilization, do people feel better than they do now? I don't think culture intentional. I don't think it's this propaganda conspiracy or something like that, but I think it's more like inadvertently um, our culture really preaches not having that we don't have enough, that there's a problem and that there is so much lack. Lack is the word that we use a lot in the law of attraction. And um, yeah, it, it kind of focuses on the negative as opposed to the positive. And our, you know, our rational mind, our rational brain, I guess, tends to do that. At least in our culture, we focus on what the problem is and not necessarily the solution. We're more um, reason-based, rational-based than we are emotionally based, you know, because saying that you, if you feel good, that that's enough to then solve your problem, it sounds out, outlandish to a lot of people. Um, but that's what I am generally saying. Um, again, I'm not dogmatic about it, but I think that culture inadvertently teaches us lack, even though we have more abundance. And as you said, we've got. I mean, look at where we are right now. Like, it's incredible just how much comfort we have. Um, but if you turn on the TV or, you know, or reading Twitter, you're unlikely to, to recognize that. They're not talking about that there. They're not like, oh, my gosh, everything is so great. I don't need anything right now. You know, I've got running water and food and, you know, it's 70 degrees in this room. I mean, that's just like, it's like, no, you know, I 
something's wrong. We need to fix it. We need to get something new. It, um, so yeah, I, you know, it's just common sense in a way when you look at it like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember not so much now, but where I live, uh, we did have food shortages early this year and I'd go to the supermarket and the shelves were empty. But my first thought was like, Oh shit. My first thought was like, man, there is a lot of bullshit in these shelves that are completely useful, useless. I know what we're missing. And I realize I don't want that in my life. You know, most, I don't need 50 types of yogurts or, you know, different butters. I'm happy just grabbing what I can from the shelf. Not that I'm not saying we should go back to Soviet style <laughs> supermarket, but I realize we have an abundance in this country and uh, other countries are, do not have that by a long shot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you're talking about just an incredible amount of abundance that we take for granted a lot of the time or most of the time. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's, it is interesting too. If you, if you look at the law of attraction from that perspective and then, um, it changes because then it's like, well, I'm not interested necessarily in manifesting a lot of external things then because I realize I already have most of what I need and maybe even want, you know? Um, and that's a sensibility thing. But I mean, personally, and this is probably because of my Zen background, but I've always much been much more into minimalism than having a lot of stuff. And that's actually a really good way to look at of applying some of this law of attraction advice is appreciating what you have now, recognizing the abundance of what you have now, and then feeling like it's inevitable that what you need is always going to be supplied to you. And in our modern world, we have that luxury. I mean, yeah, like again, yeah, there's supply chain shortages right now. And it's it's like you say, it's like you go to the store. It's like, oh, there's only two brands of, of toilet paper instead of 12. It's like, why the hell do we, yeah. do we have? I don't 12? need 10 brands of half and half. I right. Have My wife went to the store the other day and she's like, do you know how many different kinds of fruit juice there are? And I was, I was like, yeah, no, I know. It's just crazy. You know, it's like. It's all marketing, brainwashing. And like right. you said, what's on Twitter, the powers that be, uh, Stress sells, negativity sells. They exactly. want us in a state of stress because then we're easy to sell to. That's it. That's actually my next book I'm working um, on. Mm. I'm going to be talking about that subject some because it's like, yeah, if you realize that you have what you need, you're much less likely to buy. And you, and you realize how manipulative um, most sales of, of products are, you know, and it's – it doesn't need to be that way. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't sell it all and you like, you know, you can sell something ethically, but you can also very easily sell something unethically and no one's going to bat an eye in this culture because it's just accepted. And that's why there's 75 different fruit juices, you know, in one aisle, you know, it's like whatever. I mean, listen, if you're a fruit juice freak listening to this, uh, to this show, I apologize, but it is what it is. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Agreed. Um, so, um, for your clients, tell us about your, your, the work you do uh, and how you work with your clients. What can they expect and all that good stuff? Yeah. I mean, so when I got into the law of attraction, I was looking for like someone to help me through the process of, of manifesting. Right. I guess. Um, but also just like someone to be like, well, you could try this or try that and come at it from kind of this 
counseling or therapeutic point, you know, where I felt like I had a friend in the process. So I try to be that friend, but the way I do that is I just go really deep with the people I work with. I do not work with many people at once. And, um, we just get really, it's just inner work, you know? I mean, I'm all about doing the inner work. I never promise external results for people. Uh, I basically say, we're going to change how you feel on the inside. And if we do that, you know, outer results are likely going to follow. But if you change on the inside, you're not going to necessarily care about the outer results you want right now anyway. And um, the way I do that is uh, some of the stuff that we already mentioned, but also just getting really still and deep with with the people I work with, you know, and that it's very um, individual based, whatever they, they need. Um, I've never been able to like do group coaching or something like that because it, it's, I'm all for people doing that. It's just like, it's one-on-one, you know? Um, I remember there's, there's this Zen teacher. I, I love Koto Sawaki. He, he was a 20th century Zen teacher. And he, he's like, you know, everybody's, everybody's pretty decent, pretty good when they're by themselves, you know, it's like, but then we get a lot of people involved and that's when the trouble starts, you know? Um, and I think when you work, you know, you work with somebody, you know, from like a counseling or healing perspective or coaching perspective, if you're able just to, to work with them one-on-one, there's almost always a lot of depth that can be brought out. Um, and so that's what I, that's what I do when I, when I work with clients. Um, and, you know, my podcast, The Law or Law of Attraction Explored is more like, it gives you an idea of the kind of work I do because it's basically like a, most of the episodes are like 10 minutes long and they're kind of meditations on a, on a, on a law of attraction principle to try to go deeper within to, to figure that out for ourselves, how that feels for us. And then being able to play with that idea some in our own lives. Yeah, I'm all for that. I have, uh, for a, no logical reason, I published this short ebook, uh, or book, or uh, you can get an audiobook, 10 Snackable Meditations, because I realize you can't, don't knock the TikTok generation or anything else, because those short little tools, or, you know, even those little cliches and fridge magnet sayings that we talk about, in this age where we're so fragmented, so under stress, so little time, those work well. So uh, a 10-minute discussion on a quick meditation that might have helped somebody who needs it is a good idea. Yeah. I mean, it's – what I also find is like in regards to the episodes I do for for my podcast, 10 minutes is all you need. Like, uh, like, uh, you know, when there's like – depth there and you're meditating on a subject if in many times when it's longer than that it's i don't want to say it's too much but it's like it it feels like the right amount of time i I guess i would put it that way what i like about um the podcast is that it's like you can then go back to it and listen to it again later on you know you can listen to a couple episodes and then a few months later go back and you're listening to the same episode and it's like it's like wow you know i mean like i i do hypnotherapy with a you know i I have a hypnotherapist and um we record the sessions and so you know it's generally very profound in the session but sometimes i go back and listen to it again later and it's like a it's an entirely different session so yeah I, i i 
I don't know where I'm going there logically with what I just told you, but I think it, I think you got the point of what I'm, what I'm saying. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you also talk about the Sedona method. uh, That's really helped me out. Uh, What are your thoughts on it? Yeah. Well, the Sedona method is, is Lester. Well, this is an interest. I'll I'll go on maybe a two minute tangent about this. Um, So the Sedona method is, you know, based on the teachings of Lester Levinson, who, um, was really a, a cool spiritual teacher. Um, he died, I think, in the mid '90s, so he's relatively modern. And uh, it, a lot of it's about like you know releasing or letting go of of um, these these feelings of, of of negativity and stress. And what's interesting is it kind of it spun off in several different ways. Um, but Levinson, he's got this great book that I recommend people read it's 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 called no attachments no aversions it's his autobiography well worth reading because it kind of explains his he lived a fascinating life and it, it really explains his philosophy well but then um david hawkins who wrote the book letting go as well as other books he's he's well known in the you know the new age community he worked closely with levinson and i actually think the sedona method is an interest it's a it's a good method and it's lester's you know, method. But I would say that what Hawkins talks about in his book, specifically in letting go, is actually a better distillation of that that process than even the Sedona method. Um, a lot of it is just, in my opinion, my interpretation is just when you have an uncomfortable feeling, to let the feeling be there and to kind of suspend all judgment. And so you notice the feelings there and you don't do anything with it except let it be there. And what happens is relatively quickly, you notice it changes and it, it kind of, it's like it deflates almost a lot of the time. And it's, that's really powerful to recognize. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of that stuff. Uh, Lester and Hawkins both have, in my opinion, um, there's some, flaws there like some kind of weird culty stuff for both of them at the end of their careers um but again especially when it comes to law of attraction you've got to take both the good and the bad into account and it's like a lot of these teachers might be very flawed in some ways but they still have something wonderful to share um that i don't feel that way as much about a lot of spiritual teachers you know like for instance, like if there was a Zen teacher who had like a major sex abuse scandal, I would look at them very differently. But like mm-hmm. with some of these, you know, very practical law of attraction teachers, they're still going to show you how to practically improve your life, even if they were really fucked up in other ways. And I'm not saying, by the mm-hmm. way, that Lester or Hawkins was, I'm not saying it was to that extent. I'm just saying yeah. that I don't agree by, you know, about with everything they say, basically. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, maybe we can loop back and do a show on the Sedona method because I think it's like, uh, yeah, Neville Goddard, these are underrated guys and we live in a time where I think people need more choices, hence finding Hermes. And again, uh, people like Neville Goddard or uh, Lester Levinson, they don't dress up like gurus or Aleister Crowley and have this exotic feel. There's just guys with suits and ties who had some great insights, but they, again, they're not as sexy as the other ones. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's really fascinating to see how 
this that stuff, you know, Neville stuff, Lester stuff, is then marketed in this sexy way. And you're like, brand new, cutting edge. And you're like, no, there's, I mean, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. Nothing new. Um, and that's what's so fascinating in a way. Um, and it's also perplexing, you know. I mean, I, I'll mention uh, just in, in passing, like, uh, you know, Emil Coué is, is my favorite law of attraction teacher, and he was he was huge in the in the nineteen teens and twenties. He was a mm-hmm. big. Everybody knew his name, and now virtually nobody even talks about him. And it's the same thing because it's so non sexy, non anything, and it's just. It's amazing when you when you know when you read about like what he did and how effective he was. But people generally want the more you know I use the word superficial, um, and you can get some of the superficial things and still go deep. I guess that's what is important to recognize. You know, you can still access these great teachers who are going to explain it to you better than some of the deriv- of the der- derivatives that came after them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, where can people find out more about you, Tim? Uh, my website is radicalcounselor.com. And um, I'm on Amazon. I'm on, you know, podcasts. I'm on, I have a YouTube channel. So you can find me. Um, I love answering questions from people who are are interested in, in you know, this stuff. Um, and I like to, to provide kind of a support if you feel like you need it if you have a you know a question that you think i might be able to help you with by all means email me i'm usually pretty good at at getting back to uh to people so yeah i hope to hear from from some of you awesome well tim it's been a great discussion Uh, hopefully uh, we'll attract the right traffic and those listening will attract the right solutions and thank you very much for coming on finding hermes thank you miguel it was it was a great talking to you MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.